Welcome to the Prince Daniels Jr. Show. I created this podcast because I understand that we are all spiritual beings having a human experience on a journey to learn more, discover a deeper, more meaningful purpose in our lives, our why. I will be interviewing some of the most accomplished individuals in the world that have achieved a high level of success and have learned how to maintain it. I will also be sharing my stories and insight as part of my more than 10-year relationship with a monastery as a former NFL running back, thought leader, and author. And so now, let's elevate together. What's up, everybody? This is Prince Daniels Jr., and welcome to the Prince Daniels Jr. Show. Today, I have an incredible and articulate guest who has written over 11 books and co-authored four of them. He is one of the best journalists in the game and has merged politics and sports, creating his own lane. I had reached out to him and was interviewed on his podcast, Edge of Sports, and I enjoyed meeting him so much that I brought him on to mine. See, one of the things I wanted to ask him was, how is someone that is non-black an advocate for athletes, specifically black athletes that are sometimes treated less than human and misunderstood, so that not all athletes have to shut up and dribble? Once I had the opportunity to meet him, I wanted everyone to know him and share his story. One of the things he said to me that really stuck out was that we all have a responsibility to make a difference in the world, and he is doing exactly that. Without further ado, I would like to introduce to you Dave Zirin. Dave Zirin, how are you doing today, my man? Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, thank you so much for uh, your time and and I'm taking this interview, man. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, man, you are a man of many trades. You are incredible. Uh, you know, I, I had an opportunity to learn about you through uh, Michael Bennett and his book that you co-authored. And, and I really enjoyed reading some of the book. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing, but... You know, that was the first time I had a chance to, to learn about who you are, uh, just from a um, just from a, a, an author standpoint. And uh, I didn't know, I didn't know, I just knew Michael Bennett because we grew up in the same area. And mm-hmm. when I saw your name, I was like, "Who is this other guy, Dave Zerlin?" Mm-hmm. And when I when I went and did my research and I looked you up, uh, you you had this incredible interview with someone and you were talking about uh, athletes and sports and politics and I was wondering like wow who who is this person how are they able to collide these two things with with and and be brave about it and speak at it, speak about it from an intellectual standpoint and so I was I was um, impressed and so I said to myself I have to speak to this, this individual he's amazing. Um, I want to hear a little bit of his story. Um, so if you don't mind, can you tell our listeners about your story and who you are and where you're from? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in New York City uh, in the 1980s and 90s. I, you know, was a sports obsessive growing up. I, like, followed the, the Mets super closely, the the Jets, the Knicks. So it was kind of a depressing time. 
except for the 86 Mets. I was at game six of the World Series when I was a little kid. The ball went through Bill Buckner's legs and the stadium exploded. I mean, that's an unforgettable memory. So I just grew up loving sports. I played sports. I pretty much played every sport except golf, which I'm convinced is not a sport. Um, My theory is that anything you can gain weight or smoke cigarettes while doing is not a sport. That's just my own personal (laughs) So, you know, I never gave too much thought about the politics of sports, even though I I grew up in a political family that cared about politics and cared about what was going on in the world. You know, for me, sports was always my own separate obsession. It was about learning statistics and watching games and reading books, but never the politics of sports. But that changed for me in 1996 when uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf a uh, great guard for the Denver Nuggets, made the decision that he wasn't going to come out for the national anthem before games. And learning about his reasons why and seeing people comment on television that, I'll never forget this, I was watching ESPN and they were like, Rauf spits on the flag, booyah, dan in it, And I remember watching it and they had somebody on television talking about how Mahmoud abdul Rauf must see himself in the tradition of athlete activists like Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King. And just that one little comment really turned me on to the history. And that made me want to really investigate the history. And I started doing it and writing articles about the past of sports and the political past and then some of the present. And I started doing that back in like 2002. And I've been doing it ever since. Um, and that's how I met Michael Bennett and it, Michael approached me about doing the book together. Cause, uh, he said he read another book that I did with John Carlos, the 68 Olympian yeah. and made a you know great connection with Michael. And we wrote a book we're really proud of. And, uh, and Hey, through that book, I met you. So you see all these connections, it all comes around link by link by link. It does. Wow, that's amazing, man. When when, when you mentioned uh, uh, 1996 and the, the, the basketball player, it made me think about um, Vlade Divac um, when he was in when when it was the breakup of Yugoslavia mm-hmm. and and, and uh, Serbia. Um, I, I'll, I'll never forget that. I remember uh, at the time they had a civil war going on. Mm-hmm. And he he was on TV, and someone ran in front of him and raised up the flag, and he grabbed the flag and he threw it on the ground, and that started a war. And it was just, and it it was, it was him being himself. Uh, well, him being an athlete, a, a competitor, and he didn't know the the ramifications, the implications that it had when he grabbed the flag and threw it on the floor. So now it was war, and so you have. Uh, Croatians and Serbians uh, fighting, and they're cousins. Some of them are actually cousins, and they actually uh, they have a civil war within their country. So, um, for you to you know to be intrigued by that and actually find a passion, like that's amazing, man. Absolutely. Uh, and what you're describing is a great example of it. I remember being young and you know seeing these players like. Lade Divac and Tony Kukoc, all of a sudden they're on different teams. Right. Serbia and Croatia and learning about that. And that that was an entry for me to learn about the entire conflict of what was happening in Yugoslavia. I might not have known too much about it otherwise. So 
I think for a lot of people, sports becomes an entry point into politics where they learn about things that they otherwise would ignore or not know anything about. And that's what makes sports, I think, so powerful because it's like a national language, almost a secret language where we're talking about the world, but it's almost like, you know, outsiders don't really understand what we're saying, but we're educating ourselves through sports. And that's very valuable in this country where oftentimes people don't talk about things, especially to people with whom they disagree. Wow. That is amazing. So for the last four years, you know, there's um, been a spotlight on the collision of politics and sports and, and um, social uh, injustice and racism and, mm-hmm. and, and you Everyone has always told the players, well, like the, well, I'm not sure the lady's name, but she told um, LeBron James, you know, just shut up and dribble. Yeah. Um, what, one, what is, what is your take on that? Because I know that you're an advocate for the athletes and you are that voice, but also do you think athletes should be involved in politics? Um, um, Cause naturally I feel that they're already involved in politics. Um mm-hmm. Um, when, when someone makes a comment about you or, or just makes a, a, a berating comment towards you um, and just tell you to stay in your place, like you, you speak up for the athletes. What's your take on that? Well, first and foremost, let's be honest. When someone tells athletes to shut up and dribble, there is an underlying racism there and an underlying contempt there. Because that's leveled, it was, that was leveled at LeBron James, the most prominent athlete. And because of that, the most prominent black athlete in all of the land and shut up and dribble. It has that echo of shut up and dance, you know, shut up and entertain, hmm. shut up and just be this person who I get to turn on my TV and forget about my troubles for a while. And I'm not going to see you as a full human being. I'm not going to see you as somebody who has actual thoughts and beliefs and ideas. I only want this one little part of you, the part that entertains me. So there's a deep, deep, deep patronizing and I would argue racist contempt that goes along with that shut up and dribble statement. And the hypocrisy is so evident of people like that particular announcer on Fox, because if it's a athlete, particularly a white athlete, you know, talking about conservative politics, you know, they're going to celebrate that person. You know, it's only when they talk about these things that they disagree with that the shut up and dribble mantra comes out. And to me, that sort of gives the game away. That gives the game away in a major way. Oh, my dog needs to chill. <laughs> it's all right. See, my dog is mad, too, about this. Um, I think what, what, where it becomes really critical, too, is for us to understand that it's not sports and politics that they disagree with. It's sports and a certain kind of politics. It's sports and resistance politics. It's when athletes use sports not to speak, you know, in favor of things like militarism or nationalism or, you know, trying to sell you things that the team is sponsoring, you know, that those kinds of politics. And believe me, those are all political things. Those kinds of politics are always accepted. But when an athlete dares to speak out for their community or dares to speak out against police violence or dares to speak out against racism, that's when you see the Fox News of the world say, shut up and dribble, shut up and dance, shut up and entertain, shut up and know your place. And that's just so offensive. Why is that? 
why 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 do they why do they want to do that? Is it is it a uh, is it because they want to continue to oppress uh, mm-hmm. anyone that's that looks like they're rising and and doing good? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I also think you know that the Republican Party in the late '60s they adopted what they called the Southern strategy, mm-hmm. which was to, as a way to win and lock down Southern states for over a generation. What you do is you play on racism and you secure white votes in Old Dixie and try to actually organize uh, voters on the basis of, of race by playing on racist ideas and racist divisions. Now, that was called the Southern strategy, basically dealing with about a dozen states in the southeast of the United States. I would argue that organizations like Fox News, they represent a 50 state Southern strategy. Uh-huh. And it's been far too successful. I mean, my goodness, you hear stories of Confederate flags being flown in places like Michigan and Colorado and right. New Jersey and upstate New York. I mean, what the heck do those states have to do with the Confederacy? What are you talking about? But obviously, those flags are symbols much more of white supremacy and racism to those folks rather than any sort of remembrance of the Civil War, for goodness sakes. And so, I mean, I, I, my, my buddy said to me, like, I see more Confederate flags up in uh, upstate New York than I'm seeing when I go back home to South Carolina. Wow. And it's it that and Fox News, I think, bears a lot of responsibility for that, for, you know, playing on racial resentments, for whipping up racism. And it's all because they're the media arm of the Republican Party. I think it's all connected. And when you have something like sports, which is such a powerful cultural medium in this country, and when you have an athlete like LeBron James, who has more social media followers than the president of the United States, mm. you know, it becomes a political imperative to take him down a peg. And, you know, to LeBron's great, you know, and I have criticisms of LeBron James, but in, in great defense of him, you know, like he called a documentary that he did about the history of politics and basketball. He called it shut up and dribble. You know, I mean, he uses that phrase all the time now as a way to say, you think I'm just going to shut up and dribble? Well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to be a leader of my community. And, you know, that makes him a threat. And that's what's, that's why the platform for athletes, particularly black athletes, but for all athletes, their political platform has been policed and monitored for as long as there have been sports in this country. We could go back to Jack Johnson over a hundred years ago and it's the same thing. And it's an old script. It's like you attack black athletes as a way, as a sort of cover for making racist attacks in the United States. Right, right, right. Wow. You know, it's, I, I could be coming from a narrow perspective, but to see someone be so brave, that's not African American. And 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 speak out about this, uh, uh, in in a way that's like, hey, this is right and this is wrong. Um, it's it's so fulfilling, and I can see why Michael and other athletes, Jim Brown, would come, uh, uh, would would want to write a book with you because you speak in a way that's that instills so much confidence, but also gives an intellectual stance from. From like, hey, this is this is this is right. This is wrong. This is what's going on. You understand your history. Mm. What is it that 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 makes you feel uh, empowered and confident to to 
to speak about the the, the running role. Well, first of all, that's, that's just incredibly kind of you. I, I don't think it's brave. I think it's um, a point of responsibility. I think white people have a particular point of responsibility to speak out against racism mm. and to make that message clear to other white people. You know, for far too long, the burden of fighting racism has been on the black community when racism is a national sickness. And racism is something that, you know, that I think destroys white people as well. You know, because when it put, putting like justifying the hate in people's hearts, it turns somebody into less of a person than they otherwise would be. Also, when they're able to keep white and black people divided and at each other's throats, the government is able to get get away with so much malfeasance and thievery because we're not united. Right. We're looking at each other as part of the problem instead of coming together. So even though black people, of course, bear the brunt of racism, I think white people have a special responsibility to speak out against it. And, you know, so I wear that badge very proudly. Um, I mean, my goodness, I mean, that, that, that the idea that white people shouldn't speak out about racism. I mean, it's like a it's like taking away their responsibility to be human beings, mm. you know, and to showcase their humanity. And as for me individually, I mean, what I always tell folks, and it's the truth, this is why I tell folks this, is just for me, sports was such a big deal for me growing up. I played basketball, I played baseball, um, and I played in very, very, very multiracial environments in New York City. And I was playing at a time when, there were several high profile murders of young black Americans in the city. And there were huge demonstrations and things of that nature, a lot of racial division. Um, and sports was a way that I could see the perspective from my black friends about what it meant for them to have someone like Yusef Hawkins killed in Bensonhurst or Michael Stewart killed on by, by the police. He was a graffiti artist or, the killings in Howard Beach, like the, these were, these were like, these were crime scenes for me growing up, Bensonhurst, Howard Beach, and the like. And so it was just uh, sports, my goodness, I mean, it played such an important role for me in taking down racism um, in my in my head. And I got to say, when I started looking at the history, it's so interesting, like, in the 1960s, even with a lot of government orders, so much of the South was still segregated and under the boot of Jim Crow. And yet when sports teams decided to um, set like athletes said that they wouldn't play unless stadiums were integrated and things of that nature, oftentimes sports was leading the way in the 1960s in the South, creating integration where it didn't exist previously and fighting Jim Crow. And so there's this whole amazing history of how sports has been this bridge away from racism for so many uh, white folks. And, and I think that, you know, that's one of the, again, one of the reasons why I think you have people say things like shut up and dribble, because sports is very dangerous to people who believe in, in racist and racial and racism and racial division. Wow. Wow. You're so right. You're so right. I, I've I've felt uh, racism um, on many levels, um, where the collegiate level on, but more so the professional level. It's, mm -hmm. it's like you are a young kid. You get thrust into this this business world, and 
uh, professional world and you have to act a certain way. Uh, so I, I don't want to get too far off of our course of the show, but I wanted to ask you, okay, so I remember you speaking about um, Drew Brees and how he wrapped himself in the flag um, when he, he had an opportunity to speak up about about the um, the national anthem and players kneeling during the national anthem. And um, you, you, you spoke in a, a way about it as if, like, Drew – he he just wanted to wrap himself in the flag and 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 be politically correct from from one side of it but 70% of the players or his teammates are african american mm-hmm. like why why would why would he he choose to do something like that and not band with his brothers because usually usually football is is similar to um to, to the military you know, you you go out there and you and you fight for your brothers, and so there's a there's a a major co- correlation between the two. But uh, it seemed like the 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 man in charge um, did not take it upon himself to say, "All right, this is a moment where I can make a difference um, in history." Um, I, I felt that he didn't understand how big his platform was and his voice. Um, what what was something that that compelled him to to speak on that? Well, it was interesting. I mean, Drew Brees, you know, the the hero of New Orleans. I mean, people were starting to chant, you know, bleep Drew Brees, you know, like people were doing demonstrations and rallies. Yeah. And I think that that's what really shook him. That and when he had teammates like Malcolm Jenkins um, and Michael Thomas. I mean, these are the, the two of the most, you know, most important players on the team, you know, just come out and be like, wow, you really messed this up, Drew you really messed this up. You know, George Floyd is dead. Athletes are speaking out and you're telling us that if we protest, what we're really doing is protesting the troops and the country. When what people are really protesting is the gap between what this country says it stands for and the lived realities of black Americans. That's why people kneel during the national anthem. And so for Drew Brees to willingly not represent that reality, I mean, I think it just unleashed a, a firestorm because it's like these athletes and the people of New Orleans, they're just so sick and tired of, of, of what I refer to as white blindness, you know, like this kind of willing blindness and repeating and parroting these talking points that have nothing to do with what people are actually trying to say, like the the open and proud manipulation of people's real voices. I mean, it's what the young people, they call it gaslighting. Right. You know, like you say, hey, I'm protesting police brutality. Oh, you mean you're protesting the troops? No, I just said I'm protesting police brutality, so I'm kneeling during the anthem. Oh, so you hate the anthem and the flag. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm protesting the agents of the state, the police, killing black and brown people in the streets and not, you know, and getting away with murder. Oh, so you're protesting the troops. You see what I'm saying? It's yeah. like it's like they're tired of the gaslighting and they peep in. They felt like Drew Brees was gaslighting them. And that, that's inexcusable, especially for a leader of the team and somebody who people are supposed to look at as a leader. I mean, we've all seen the footage of Drew Brees psyching up the team in the, you know, in the pregame, you know, and he's got them all around and he's getting everybody going or whatnot. Like, I think Drew Brees realized that he was seeding all of that leadership through his statements. Mm. You can't talk about how the team is a family 
you know, which is what Drew Brees and all, all these quarterbacks do. You know, my team is a family. You can't talk about the team as a family and then gaslight and ignore what 70% of your family is saying and thinking and going through. Correct. No, you're so right about that. You know, for me, I felt that he should have gotten back on camera and made an apology as opposed to, um, it, it, I could be wrong, but opposed to like his PR person um, actually sending out a social media post and putting it yeah. up there. Um, I think that would have been more authentic and genuine uh, from 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 him. So um, without getting too far into politics, because I don't talk too much about politics, uh, but I wanted to ask you a little bit more about yourself, um, about there is so much stuff going on in the world. And at some point in time in our lives, we have to, uh, I feel that we have this premonition or we see something about ourselves or we see something about the world and we realize that um, there's something out there that's bigger than us. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt that there was something big into, bigger than you? And if so, could you describe it? Mm, wow, that's a big question. Um, I think I really felt like there was something bigger in life than me. I mean, it was uh, about January 20th, 1997. Um, I mean, that was the day where I met my wife. And... Um, I met her on a day that um, I was part of organizing a demonstration in Washington, D.C. to keep my school open, which was the University of the District of Columbia. Yeah. And so I went out for this demonstration to try to keep the doors of the school open. And uh, uh, this was a place called Martin Luther King Jr. Plaza in front of MLK Library. And there was another demonstration called for that same plaza by a group of homeless rights advocates mm -hmm. and protesting budget cuts as well. And we didn't know the other demonstration was going to be there. So we all came out to that demonstration site and we're like, oh, got a couple hundred people on this side, got a couple hundred people 10 feet away from us. We're protesting the same things, but we're kind of salty with one another. Like, oh man, this is supposed to be our demonstration. You know what I'm saying? Right. The media is going to get all confused and it's going to be a big uh, you know, mess up. And so I was put in charge of going over to the other demonstration to say, hey, let's combine forces and see if we can all protest budget cuts together. And in the process of doing that, I met um, my, my, my wife, Michelle, because she was at the other demonstration. And so I've always felt like, you know, there's there something about, you know, we were able to come together as a couple at the same time that we were able to bring these movements together to fight for the same thing. And that's just made me realize like, okay, like something very important, like even though massive world events are what shape our lives, certainly we have the power to also shape those events. Mm. And so it's not enough just to sort of stand on the sideline and watch the world exist and go through the motions like you also have to be a willing participant in what is happening around you wow that's amazing that's awesome man i just want to give a, a quick shout out to michelle michelle yeah. for being incredible you know um how old were you at that time oh lord i was like uh 22 22 wow it, it amazes me um, that you are so young and you're out there advocating, you're 
you're you're you're marching and you're expressing yourself and using your voice. Um, at 22, I was still <laughs> figuring out how to uh, adjust uh, to going to the NFL. No, just well, yeah, and you had a lot on your shoulders, and I know about your story, Prince. Yeah, talking to you, you you were also like the the ultimate underdog who surpassed expectations every step of the way. Yeah, so I mean, you were you were the same in in in, in regards of of your field as well. So um, uh, I, I understand that's why we have the mutual respect for one another because uh, for you to actually get out there, that's brave. That's brave to get out there and to 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 be in charge. They actually put you in charge to shape everyone's uh, mindset and get them to understand that you are you are actually the connector. So, man, Dave, you're doing uh, some amazing things, man. I want to ask you. Uh, this is another another deep or big question. Like, do you think that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, or human beings having a spiritual experience? Wow. I mean, I mean, if I'm being just, I mean, let, let, let the listening public know I didn't get these questions ahead of time. So I'm (laughs) answering just seriously off the top of my noggin here. That's such a huge question. I mean, I have to think, and I'm not trying to back off the question that it's a little bit of both, Mm. Um, you know, and that, that, that there's a relationship between the spiritual and the human. That's almost like the chicken and the egg. Like, I I wouldn't, it's almost like it's, it's, I'm, I'm way too, humble to even try to uh, express which one would possibly or could possibly have come first. Yeah. Because I believe that the spiritual is actually what makes us human. Right. You know, our ability to try to, you know, be, be in charge of our own environment, our ability to uh, create relationships with those around us, our ability to give ourselves shelter and food and sustenance and try to fight for a better world. I mean, that's, that to me is spiritual and that's what makes us human. Um, but which one developed out of which is, is I think a, a total question that, I mean, it's like, what is the sand of, what is the sound of one hand clapping or <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like a, or, or, or what sound does a tree make if it falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it? it it's, it, it's deeply, um, it's something that we could ruminate over for hours without coming to an answer. Oh. Did humans de- uh, develop their spirituality or did the fact that we are innately spiritual develop us as human beings away from being beasts? Mm. Man. So there's no wrong answer. And the way that you just answered that was immaculate. So Thank you. <laughs> yes. um, if you had one gift that you can give to yourself, what would be that one gift? It can be um, having extra time, uh, eating lunch with a loved one, uh, someone that's deceased, uh, or do you already have everything that you could possibly want? Well, I think it's just, it's almost like I, I would really, if I could give a gift to myself, it would be able to see the fulfillment in the lives of of others, of the people around me, um, and, and the ability of them to find a sense of, of freedom and peace in their own lives. And, um, you know, cause we, we all have family and friends who go through tough times. Right. And so, so I think rather than, I, mean, I think that would be the ultimate gift for myself to know that like my sister was on solid ground 
and moving forward in her life that my mom was on solid ground going forward in her life you know so rather than rather than take a gift for myself i just i would just really love to see the humanity around me find themselves in a place where they can struggle because you know and struggle for a better world because it's really hard to struggle for your friends family and neighbors when you're so worried about yourself whether it's covid whether it's paying the rent whether it's you know making sure your kids are okay I just feel like like unless you're on solid mental ground in your own personal life, it's very difficult to fight for the well-being for others. Very difficult. So I would just ask for solid ground for as many people connected to me as possible so they could begin to not look inward, you know, in terms of their own lives, but start to look outward and how they could help change the world. Man, you are a poet in motion. That is incredible. And selfless as well. Uh, that's why people revere you. You're you are loved by many, man. So, um, speaking of love by many, so a lot of people see you very successful. I know. I, I spoke to my mother, and I told her that yeah, I was, I'm going to interview this 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 guy named Dave Zervin, and she was just like, Dave Zervin, you mean the guy that's on TV? I was like, yeah, you know Dave Zervin, <laughs> and she was like, yes. I said, wow, my, my mom, she's into politics and uh, she's seen you on TV um, a couple of times. Well, enough times to know exactly who you are without me um, uh, telling her to go look you up on the Internet. So as you can see that there are a lot of people see you as being very successful and I see you as that as well. Can you describe to me your definition of success um, for your life? Oh, God. Uh... <laughs> I mean, to and, me, then, and then how have you been able to maintain it? Because a lot of people, they, 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 they come into success and it's just like, ah, um, well, I had success and they can go off on the deep end and, and um, succumb to drugs and alcohol. Uh, but how have you been able to maintain it? Because you've created a lane for yourself where you merge um, sports and politics it's not too many. I, I see some people doing it, but not on not on your scale, not on your level. Um, and you've been able to make a living from it. So, like, how how are you able to maintain this level of success? Whew. I mean, I, I guess part of it is not viewing myself as successful, but viewing myself as somebody with a broader mission that. Is, is doesn't really rely around what I do as an individual, but just trying to see what I'm doing as being a part of a much broader process and a much broader struggle. Like I view sports as something beautiful that we need to fight to reclaim in this country because there's so much, uh, so many ways that people manipulate sports for evil ends, whether it's the injustices of how college athletes are treated, whether it's the injustices of racism or sexism in sports, like all of these things exist um, in the sports world. And it's possible that we can use sports as a way to actually fight injustice. So if I feel like that process is underway, I feel like if I feel like that this project that I've you know devoted the last 18 years of my life to doing, if I feel like that is moving in the right direction, then I feel successful. And certainly if I feel like I'm a part of moving it in the right direction, then I feel successful. It's not about individual accolades. It can't be. 
you know, because that becomes almost in, that becomes almost inevitably a shallow process. Right. Because then you start to ask yourself, well, why haven't I gotten more accolades? Mm. Why haven't I gotten more of it? You know, it becomes the, the gift of, not the gift. What, what did Pat Riley call it? He called it the, the curse of more. Curse of more. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, if you're in that, and, and I always taken that very seriously, like, you know, like this idea, if you start asking for yourself, inevitably the broader project will disintegrate. I mean, look at Shaq and Kobe, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like they could have won 10 championships together. Exactly. They could have gone down in history as the greatest duo in the history of sports. Facts. Goodness sakes. And the, 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 the curse of more took that and, and, and disintegrated it. Um, and so I just think that, that there are valuable life lessons in that. Right. Um, meanwhile, if you flip it, look at LeBron going back to Cleveland and, and winning a championship for a town that hadn't seen a championship since 1964. I mean, right. you can't tell me he wasn't doing that partly because he wanted to actually write the narrative of ending the drought in Cleveland, not for himself, but for the city itself. And so I just think like the, the, the curse of more um, is something that you have to confront openly. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. There are times where I'm like, Oh, why didn't, you know, this publishing company put more money into promoting my book. It could have done better. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have done this. It could have done that. But like, then you got to check yourself. Yeah you know, and really get into what you're so good at, Prince, which is that mindfulness. Right. Thinking about, you know, what are the broader goals that you want to see? What kind of world do you want to see? And how can you push the wheel? How can you push the arc of history towards those goals? Correct. You know, we we, we are human. So it's okay for us to have those, those, um, those thoughts. But at the same time, yes. How do you overcome that? How do you rise above it? Exactly. It's it's not, and I have those thoughts. It's not about me whipping myself, you know, in in self torment because I have these thoughts that are somehow not what they should be. It's about accepting those thoughts and confronting them, and then thinking: Is this the most, you know, is this constructive or is it destructive? Correct. Do I have a transactional relationship with sports or do I have a transformational relationship with sports? Mm. And if it's transactional, that's a problem because I'm only looking at sports for what it can give me. But if it's transformational, then I'm looking at sports as what it can give to, to masses and masses of people. Wow. That is amazing. Well said, well put. So Dave, what's next for you? Well, I've got a book coming out um, in September, so but it's already written. They're just waiting for the start of the football season to do it. Uh, the book is called The Kaepernick Effect. Oh. And I interviewed dozens of young people who took a knee in 2016, to 2017, 2018, and talked to them about how it affected their lives and their communities and why they did it. And so it's really putting forward the voices of young people and why they chose that particular space before sporting events as a way to showcase their protests. And um, I'm going to give profits of the book to racial justice organizations in the DC area um, as a way to provide my own tribute to what Colin Kaepernick did and the way he also 
you know, used so much of his own fortune as a way to build community and build organizations that were trying to do uplift. So that's the next book. Hopefully people care about the stories of these young people, because I really have a theory that, um, and this is what I'm trying to prove with the book that, you know, in 2020, you saw all those demonstrations after the police murder of George Floyd. And my argument is that all these young people taking a knee during those years, they really laid the groundwork for those big demonstrations. And because they changed their communities, they started conversations in their communities. And hopefully, uh, hopefully that argument, people can hear it. And through that, develop more respect and admiration for these young people who took great risks for the purposes of seeing their communities grow. Amazing. Amazing. I will definitely be an advocate to promote that. And um, I will send you a copy and I'd love to talk to you about it. Yes. Oh, I would love to talk to you about it as well, because I, I do have some, a, a strong opinion on it, but, uh, uh, but I, I also appreciate you taking the responsibility um, to actually do something like this, to write something like this, to open people's eyes, make them become aware um, of these these things that need to be changed. Um, so, man, that is uh, extremely awesome. Can you tell our, our, our listeners where they can find you, where they can stay connected with you? Because I want them to be uh, abreast on every single thing that you have going on, because this That's is really kind of you. Um, and first of all, let me just say how, what an honor it is for me to be on this show. Like I, I've researched you a great deal, Prince, like before interviewing you on, on my podcast, Edge of Sports. Um, I actually, this is true. I just yesterday spoke to a friend from college who I hadn't spoken to in 25 years. Uh, it was in the way she got in touch with me was because she listened to our interview. Really? <laughs> like, oh my goodness. You know, I haven't talked to Dave in so long. Let's talk. And we had a whole conversation. She doesn't even know anything about football at all. <laughs> but she was like, she's like, I heard you talk to the prince. <laughs> I was like, it's just prince. You don't have to call him the prince. Right. <laughs> it's his name. It's not a title. But she's in the mindfulness, though. So she was looking on the Internet and stuff. And she came across our interview and was like, oh, wow, Dave Zyron, I'm going to listen to this. And, and, so, and we had this great talk. So you, you, you're you're what you do is so amazing and so important and such a great example for other athletes who are, you know, getting off that, you know, incredible, you know, carnival ride that is professional sports and trying to figure out, you know, how to make their lives as exceptional off the field as it was on the field. But if people want to get, so thank you. But if people want to get in contact with me, the best I think is Twitter at edge of sports. People can contact me there and I'm happy to talk to anybody. Nice. Well, listeners, you heard it first at Twitter. I'm, I'm sorry, on Twitter at Edge of Sports with Dave Zirin. All right, Dave. So, um, in, any parting piece of advice um, that you would want to give anyone um, just about life or just going into this new year, 2021? I mean, I think I would say, you know, for for all my talk about changing the world, I would just say to folks, please don't forget to be your own biggest fan. You know, and, you know, you are good. You have a lot in you. You have potential that you have not tapped. And so be your own big supporter because nobody's going to do it for you. 
And once you start supporting yourself and feeling how you can do something to make your own life more exceptional, that's what I think opens the mind up to then saying, well, how can I help other people as well? Wow. Well said from someone who uses their power to shape the world. Dave, I cannot thank you enough, man. I'm very honored to have you on this podcast and um, just thank you for everything that you do in the world, man. You are, to me, you are a a, a blessing, an angel, a, a spirit being um, that goes around doing the necessary things to, to maintain the balance in the universe, man. So um, I thank you for that. Um, That's so kind. I want to get that on tape because my wife would say I'm the guy who doesn't take out the trash. And wear- <laughs> <laughs> uh, those are the small things. Those are the small things. But, <laughs> you know, but she's been with you for a very long time. You know? So, so um, we become complacent when it comes to, you know, the people that we care about. We Thanks. don't be around, right? <laughs> I'm going to say that for her too. Thank you. <laughs> but yes, man, thank you so much for everything that you do. It's it's so refreshing. I can see why why all these athletes will approach you and say, "Yo, hey, can I can we do a book together?" Man, at some point in time, it'll be awesome if we can connect and and work on a project together. Word up. Um, but yeah, man, um, this is super fulfilling. This is a wonderful, great. I feel, I feel great. I'm, I'm looking forward to enjoying the rest of my day with my family, man. Just, just go, go and call my mother and let her know I talked to one of the most incredible uh, in the world, man. So, fine. <laughs> give, give, give your mom uh, all, all my uh, affection and respect for, for raising a son such as yourself. Oh, thank you, man, and and same to you as well. Sentiments I share are exactly the same. So um, to, our, to our listeners out there, that's the end of this show. If you like this show, if you enjoyed it, please subscribe, review, and rate, and share it with someone who you think can benefit from it. Other than that, I look forward to you joining us for next week's episode. Have an incredible day. Talk to you later. Peace. <laughs>